0: maybe i'll just say this real quick i don't know if uh, the ross family maybe at the end of the service we'll pray for you guys because we really love to pray for you guys in the new chapter you're going into miller too and so i know brian and crystal crystal will be out there answering a thousand questions so we'll take that time if you guys want to come at that point that'd be really great we'll just take some time so if you if you want to pray with the ross family for their new chapter that would be awesome too well we're in a we, we've been in a teaching series for the last few weeks uh, we've been calling it high five uh, because the original intent was to take the top five most popular verses that people love to highlight and share with others and or search for online and uh, yeah, there we go there's those two guys I like them uh, anyhow and to take those top five verses and then just really dr- drill down deeper into some of the significance behind them because often when we approach the Bible, we like to sort of snatch and grab like a one line and then run away with it, not necessarily waiting to hear what else is there. And it's sort of like how you might listen to someone in conversation and only hear one line that they say, but then don't listen to the rest of the story. And then you run off and you take that out of context and sometimes it gets misunderstood. And I think that often happens with the Bible is people misunderstand the Bible because they're not listening to the whole thing that God is actually saying there and so so a couple weeks ago we did the favorite verse of athletes uh, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength Philippians 4 13 and uh, we talked about that and how it's it's not just for positive experiences but it's it's a powerful verse when you're in a situation that doesn't look like it's going to change, but God wants to work out the change on the inside of you. And of course, in Paul's story, it was just a change of contentment that he experienced because he realized how great Christ was and the worth of Christ in his life so that he could be content even in imprisonment, suffering, and malnutrition and all the things he experienced. Then last week, we talked about Uh, Probably the most popular verse for uh, internet fights, and that's do not judge. And uh, Matthew 7, 1, we talked about do not judge, and we went into Matthew 7 and talked about the plank in your own eye and the speck in someone else's eye, and and just sort of how, how God wants us to deal with sin, but really... The starting place for dealing with sin is in our own lives and that uh, it's it's a repentant people it's a it's a people that confess sin and and receive the forgiveness of god and have experienced that mercy that actually go out with mercy to engage others in their own sin and so we looked at sort of a progression of how to do those things Uh, by the way something i didn't have time for last week but i thought was really helpful is if you look at matthew 7 and you read that first chunk where Jesus says, do not judge, and the plank, and the speck, and all that stuff, and then you go on further, you'll see a whole bunch of things that require discernment, right, you'll see he, there's that verse, we didn't have time for it, what, you know, don't cast your pearls before pigs, but basically, it's saying, you got to have discernment to know which people are open to you sharing something of value, and if you're sharing something of value to someone who's just going to spit on it or trample it, Have discernment and recognize that, and don't waste your time on that, but look for those opportunities to speak into people's lives, and and Matthew 7 just goes on and on into things that require discernment. Uh, It talks about wise and foolish builders. How do you know if you're building your life on a solid foundation? It talks about uh, false teachers. It talks about all these different things in Matthew 7. They all require discernment or good judgment. But the first starts with the judgment that happens in our own lives where we recognize our sin and we get right with God. So, those are two that we've tackled so far. This week, I wanted to, um, I wanted to explain a little bit about the geography of why certain verses are more popular than others. So, um, YouVersion, that's the most popular Bible app that you might have on your phone, uh, has been compiling data and there's 10 countries in the world that use you version more than anyone else. So these 10 com- countries use that Bible app more than any others. And so what they did was they figured out which verses were most popular by country. So now I've got another thing to share with you this morning, not what's most popular highlighted or searched or, or shared, but by country. So here's some country rundowns real quick. Um, the most popular verse in the United States, Brazil, and Nigeria, okay, those three countries, is Philippians 4.8. So I'm just going to give you a few of these verses. If you, so if you're from the States or Brazil or Nigeria, maybe this is a favorite verse of yours. Philippians 4.8. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. So the Americans and the Brazilians and Nigerians' favorite verse is about their thoughts. Interesting, eh? How about uh, South Korea? South Korea. They, they have a unique favorite verse. No other of the top ten nations has picked this verse. But this is the favorite, most popular verse in South Korea. And it's Jeremiah 33, 2-3. This is what the Lord says, he who made the earth, the Lord who formed it and established it, the Lord is his name. Call to me and I will answer you and tell you great and unsearchable things you do not know. Call to me and I will answer you. So for the Koreans, and some of you you know church stuff, what goes on in the world, the Koreans are like um, front-runner trend centers on the leading edge of uh, a global prayer movement, and they have been for decades So if you grew up in a Korean, uh, a South Korean, well, even a North Korean church, you would have known that prayer is just the life of the church. It's what they do. They pray long, and they pray hard, and they pray loud, and they pray silent if they're in seclusion in North Korea, but they pray. So call to me and answer. So it's very interesting. Their favorite verse is about their prayers. Again, the Americans, Brazilians, and Nigerians, their favorite verse is about their thoughts. Isaiah, here's, here's one for Mexicans and Colombians. I don't know if there's any Mexicans or Colombians here today, but maybe it fits for most of Latin America. Isaiah 41.10 is their favorite verse. Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. So I think it's very interesting. So in in Central or Latin America, Their favorite verses, it talks about their fears and the strength that God provides to meet those fears. And it made me think, if I lived in Mexico or Colombia, would I be afraid? (laughs) Maybe. Maybe. I don't know. Actually, I'm sure there's parts of Mexico and Colombia where I wouldn't be afraid. But, you know, from North America, we sometimes have these preset ideas. But their favorite verse is about about their fears, Isaiah 41.10. So this brings us to what is the favorite verse in Canada? What's the one that Canadians love? And, you know, I found it very interesting. Canada shares this favorite verse with uh, the United Kingdom and Australia. Oh, and South America. Can anyone see the connection? They're all British Commonwealth countries. Yeah, so at one point, England sort of held sway over all these countries. So, and their favorite verse of all of these countries, the favorite verse for Canadians, most popular verse in Canada, is this. Jeremiah twenty nine eleven, for I know the plans I have for you declares the Lord plans to prosper you and not to harm you plans to give you hope and a future so our favorite verse in Canada and shared with some other nations is about our future or maybe you could say about our plans or God's plans right and I, I want to drill down a little bit into this verse today Jeremiah 29 11 and uh and look at it. And now it's an incredible, incredible statement of hope when you look at it. Let me read it again. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. And um, now, again, I think we've been going through this every week, but I want to emphasize it again. The ways, One of the best ways to make sure you don't misunderstand one sentence of Scripture is to, first, make sure you read the whole sentence, and this one is the whole sentence we've just read, okay? Then, secondly, read the whole, all the stuff around it, right? Read the paragraphs around it, just like you do with a good friend. They they say in a, a crazy statement, you say, okay, tell me the rest of the story, because you wanna get the context, you wanna understand why did you say such a crazy or wild or amazing statement? I wanna know the rest of the story. So that's the next thing, and then, The other thing that really helps you is knowing the life of that person. That's really helpful if you know the life of that person. So it's like your friend might tell you something and you might think, that person, that sounds like what they said was really terrible. But I know them. And that helps me fill out the rest of the story and understand them better. And so we want to do with God and his word what we would hope our friends would do with us. Seek to understand us, actually understand us. So here we go. We're going to dig back into the context of Jeremiah 29 and verse 11. So we're going to go to Jeremiah 29 and verse 4, okay? And I'll uh, we'll tell you a little, we'll read it and I'll, I'll go through a little bit of it and then we'll, uh, we'll pull out some points here. So Jeremiah 29 verse 4 says this. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Nope. let's pause there. So what's happening? So the nation of Israel has been split into two well, a long time ago, hundreds of years ago as it was split into two, a northern and southern kingdom. The southern kingdom, uh, the northern kingdom was called Israel still. It was the ten tribes up there. And then the southern kingdom was called Judah. Okay, so you had Israel and Judah. And uh, then over this way, okay, I'm doing it backwards so that you guys can get your geography right. Over here is uh, uh Above Israel here is Assyria, and then over here is Babylon, and whatever. They're over here, this way, from Israel and Judah. And uh, so, the Assyrians come in, and, uh, oh, by the way, the Israelites, the Israel portion of Israel, I know that's confusing, but this northern kingdom, they never have any good kings. They just do terrible. Like, they just are rotters. Like, their whole history is just corrupt, and they never turn back to God, and it just goes badly pretty much the whole way through. That's, you know, a very simple summary, but that's basically what happens. So it isn't, it, so what happens, eventually to Judah happens first to Israel because Israel is a really hopeless case. Judah actually has a few good kings who, or, or good uh, sort of moments where the, the nation turns back to God and repents of all their sin and 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 that's really good. But up here in Israel it's not so good. So the Assyrians come and they take them over and, and take people off in exile. But, it isn't until hundreds of years later, because or several hundreds of years later, where the people of Judah finally get invaded by the Babylonians. And when they do, again, they've been a very sinful nation as well and, and turned from God and all sorts of terrible things have happened. But when they do, uh, a few things happen. Uh, the Babylonians steal all the stuff in their treasury. And they had, like, stuff left over from, like, the days of Solomon They're the southern kingdom, so Jerusalem's down there, and that's where the temple was. And so they take all the things out of their temple treasury, all the really nice stuff made of bronze and gold and stuff like this. And um, anyhow, having said that, they also steal away the best people. Now, we'll read a little bit further, and we'll... um, no, actually, that's already in the context. So, yeah, they steal away the best people. So there's this massive brain drain that happens from Israel to Babylonia. So, they take the royal family, and some people say, "Well, that's no big deal. You know, they just cost us money. You know, woo, yeah. All the politicians. I mean, in that monarchy context, they're gone. You know, and so some people might think that's great. But then they take all the skilled laborers. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine if Moose Jaw lost every skilled laborer and then we had to go on without that right so we're just going to fix those pipes underground with these three guys who don't have never have no experience to, i'm sure you know Mo, larry curly you could do it right The Babylonians just took all their skilled laborers back to their culture so they could build hanging gardens and great things for them. But here, in back in Jerusalem, they were just totally like, they didn't have people with expertise. They were totally like wiped out in a very real sense. And uh, even though they left people around, they'd taken all the skilled people. So this incredible, devastating effect has happened. And then all, now you've got all these people who've been transplanted to Babylon, and they're like, okay, is this just going to be for this year? Are we going back next year? Are, what are we supposed to do now that we're here in Babylon? Should we just sort of hang out in a refugee camp and, and, and do our jobs that we've been assigned? or what, What's the thing that we should do? And here's the instructions that Jeremiah, a prophet of God, gives them. He said, build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there, do not decrease. Also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I've carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Now here's the first thing I want to just point out to you here. Just because God's plan seems really far off, it doesn't mean that you should be inactive now. So later on, we're going to get back to Jeremiah 29.11, which is God having plans for them. Good plans, prospering plans, hope, future-filled plans. But right now, God says, here's what you do... Now. And they had a few options, right? They could just decide that, well, we're in Babylon. Let's just be like the Babylonians. We'll worship idols and we'll just join them in whatever this culture is. And we'll just forget that we ever were Jewish Israelites. We'll forget about the God that we were supposed to worship but we had betrayed and we'll just go on with this. Or the other option was let's just live as far, as much separated as we can From the Babylonian people and just be our own little enclave our own little sort of Jewish ghetto in the Babylonian system and let's have no interaction with him so we can maintain our Jewishness so it's either do we totally immerse ourselves or do we totally remove ourselves and uh, and the answer is neither it's sort of this in-between thing that that they've been told to do build houses settle down Plant gardens, eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and daughters. Increase in number, do not decrease. And then, very interesting statement. Seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I've carried you into exile. They say, seek the peace and prosperity of Babylon. The nation, the city that's conquered you. So what do you do when you're, you're waiting for this great plan of God that's off in the future, a long way off? I'd say there's a, there's a few things. One is interaction. Some people will think of things that God has prepared for them in the future. I mean, the ultimate one is to think of what God has prepared for us after we die, to think of heaven and being with God and all that. And so sometimes we get thinking about that, and then we just sort of go, well, wow, I'm just going to wait, just waiting, waiting. You know, it's actually a really good scripture about waiting. Uh, They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up on wings as eagles. And I remember when I was in, not this church, but I was in a a different church when I just started out in the ministry. And and, um, my friend Al used to have an interesting take on this verse. When I'd get tired and exhausted, he'd say to me, wait upon the Lord and you renew your strength. And I'd say, oh, yeah, that sounds good. Just wait. And then he would do this imaginary thing. He would It was like he, he would grab in his hands, he would grab a towel, imaginary, not real, and then he'd throw it over his arm. He says, no, no, I mean wait upon the Lord. In other words, serve God while you're in this waiting period and you'll renew your strength. And so I was always like, yeah, wait, yeah, that sounds like, you know, beach chair and pina colada. But no, he actually was like, no, this is... Serve God, way you won't follow now that's not necessarily Al was not a Bible scholar. It's not necessarily what the verse means, all that stuff, but I thought he had a good principle there. There's in that period where God's plan that He might have for you seems so far off, it doesn't mean that he hasn't doesn't have a plan for you right now, and so be active now uh think about the you know I love the Ross family sharing that story, like just okay. We don't know what God's got for our future, but we're going to take 15 minutes a night and we're going to pray. Who knew those 15 minutes a night would be so explosive? You think about that. That seems sort of tame. Yeah, we're pray 15 minutes a night. Except for on the other end of that prayer is the almighty God of the universe who can change destinies, who can change futures. Don't think of prayer as a light thing. Don't think of it as like a tame thing that has no end result. Men and women for centuries have been transformed through simple prayer, just coming in contact with the living uh, creator of the universe and engaging with him. So while you're waiting, while you think something is still far off, God's got a plan but it doesn't seem to be here right now and I don't know what he's doing and all those things, Wait, serve the Lord, engage with people, and prepare yourself for what he is going to do. Let's read a little further. It says, yes, this is what the Lord Almighty says, the God of Israel says, do not let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. They are prophesying lies to you in my name I have not sent them declares the lord okay so there was a group of um of so-called prophets and they were really telling the israelites at that time exactly what they wanted to hear they were saying hey all the stuff that was stole from the the treasury is going to be returned right away and we're all going to go back to israel right away so don't engage here don't build a garden. Don't, don't plant a garden. Don't build houses. Don't get, you know don't, you know, don't count on any engagement here. Just sort of hold back because guess what? We're all going home right away. Now, if you want to know more about the context of this, you can read the two chapters before Jeremiah 29. Jeremiah 27 and 28 has this really uh, interesting struggle between Jeremiah and another prophet, false prophet, named Hananiah. And, um, and prophets were often asked to do, uh, like God would get them to do things that were visual, like almost like a drama, a dramatic enactment to get people's attention. And the one thing that uh, Jeremiah, he went before the rulers of the Israelites, and he put a yoke on his neck. And a yoke is like a thing that you would use to uh, connect to uh, oxen, so oxen, I guess, so they can go forward and work together, uh, or, you know. So anyhow, he puts this, this thing, I guess it would be made of wood, this wooden, Yoke on his own neck And he comes in before the leaders of Israel With his yoke on him And he says and, and I mean he's been groomed for this his whole life To do these kind of things He comes in there with his yoke on his neck And he says this is what's going to happen to Israel Who's abandoned God Nebuchadnezzar Nebuchadnezzar was the king of Babylon He's going to come with his army And they're going to enslave you And they're going to throw their yoke And you're going to work for them so that's what's going to happen. So he comes in, and he sort of got this yoke on his head. And Hananiah, who is the false prophet, the guy who just tells them what they want to hear, he comes along, he pulls the yoke off of Jeremiah, and he smashes it. He breaks it in half. I don't know if he's a big guy or whatever intimidating character. It sounds... I don't know, breaking a yoke sounds tough to me, anyhow. And he smashes it and he says, that's a lie, that's not true. It's all going to work out really well for us. We're just going to go for a short time and then we'll be coming right back. It's all good. And it says at the end of chapter 28, basically, that Jeremiah just sort of walks away. Because Jeremiah has been groomed for this really seemingly thankless task his whole life. His whole life he's going to tell people, that judgment is coming and that they need to turn and they're not going to listen. In fact, people call Jeremiah the weeping prophet or the suffering prophet because he had a job that never really seemed to produce any results. Yet God called him to it. And so he's faithful and he obeys it. Yet he he experiences all this uh, incredible... uh, mistreatment. Jeremiah was attacked by his own brothers. He was beaten and put into stocks by a a priest and a different false prophet than the one I'm talking about. Now he's imprisoned by the king. He was threatened with death. He's thrown into a cistern and left there, but he was eventually rescued. Uh, And again, then he's opposed by Hananiah. So Jeremiah goes home, and and, uh, you'll read this if you read the chapter before, and God speaks to him and says, uh, you better tell Hananiah he's going to die within the next year. So, he sends a message to Hanani and seven months later, he's dead. <laughs> this is not the God playing games series, you know, time here. There's some serious stuff going on. This is the thing I wanna pull out of this. Just because God's plan seems far off, it doesn't mean you should try to replace it with one that's more instant. This is what was happening with Hananiah. Hananiah got the ear of the people and the leadership. They believed him and not Jeremiah. That story about it's only going to be a little time and we're going to get everything back and we're going to have it all, it was not true. You know, there's a temptation for all of us to be drawn to people who will tell us what we want to hear. Instead of what we need to hear, I don't know if you recognize that in you. I recognize that in me. I, I, there's some people who'll just say, "Oh, Steve, you're so wonderful, and everything you do is right, and blah blah blah." And it's like, ah, oh, that sounds sort of nice. But then something inside of me sort of reminds me, no, that's not totally true. Actually, that's really far off. But we're still drawn to that. 2 Timothy 4 3 said that this is going to become a greater and greater trend as things go on. 2 Timothy 4 3 says this For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. That's like good teaching, truthful teaching. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. Their itching ears want to hear. Because we want a plan from God that puts us right at the center of it. Like, we want, I think ideally, we want sort of to be the center of the universe. At least our universe. And it would be super great if God would accommodate that and just sort of bend his will to accommodate what we already have planned for ourselves. And yet, when you engage with the living God, that's not actually how it works. God has his purposes, And he calls us according to those purposes. God is doing something from the beginning of history to the end of history. And he calls us to play a role in that. So we're actually invited to enter God's massive overarching story instead of the opposite, which is inviting God to play a minor role in our tiny story. I think it's very interesting when you go back to this. Do not listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. You know people give up a vibe. Have you noticed that? You get around some people and after sort of interacting with them for a while, you catch on. This is what they want to hear. And this is what they don't want to hear. And... I don't know if you're as big a, if you're as tempted to be a people pleaser as I am, but you know what happens then, right? You're like, they don't want to hear this, but they do want to hear that. Well, I know how to make them smile and respond now. I know how to, you know, their vibe is coming out at me real strong. Don't talk about this. Tell me these things. It's a real temptation to go into that. And when Paul wrote to Timothy, he said and the, and the, when it gets to the end of history, when history is about to wrap up, he says that's going to be epidemic. People will gather the people around them that just tell them what they want to hear. You know, whenever I run into a couple and they're in a struggle like in their marriage, I usually talk to them about this very issue. I usually say, who's, who's in your posse? Who's around you? Who's talking to you? if we're going to do the hard work and fight for your marriage so that it will get better and flourish, and will not just flourish, first survive, but then flourish and do well, I want to know that we're actually not fighting an uphill battle against voices around you that are telling you to throw in the towel. If you've surrounded yourself with guys, probably the guy, and girls, probably the girl, right, who are telling you, oh, no, it's not worth it, just quit, you know, no, big, you know, you, you don't deserve that, you should just get out now and, and, you know, look at that sweet person that, you know, whatever, you could check out them. You know, if someone else is going to be that discouraging influence in your life, because that's what you want to hear, they're the wrong advisors to have around you in a critical season or any season. Instead, you want those people, I usually say, Do you have friends in your life who will tell you the truth no matter what? Do you have one of those? Do you have two of those? Those people who, they actually love you doing well more than they love you um, responding well to them. They actually care about your future long term. Do you have a couple of those? Do you have one of those even? If you do, ask them for advice during this season. Because they won't tell you what your itching ears want to hear. They'll tell you what you actually need to hear. They'll actually love you. So just because God's plan is far off, it doesn't mean you should try to replace it with one that's more instant. You say, well, it seems like what God wants for me is difficult and far away, and, and uh, huh? I bet I could come up with a really great plan for my life that, uh, you know, doesn't necessarily need to involve God, and I'm sure I know how to make myself more satisfied than God could ever make me satisfied, and so I'm just going to come up with my own plan right here and now. And I love this. Do not listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. <laughs> Can you imagine those prophets? I had a dream last night. Oh, really? Yeah, you know how you really want your crops to do well and your children to do really well and all these things to happen in your life? Yeah, that's the dream I had. Exactly. You are a prophet. What a spiritual person. (laughs) You mean even though I'm sinning like crazy, there'll be no repercussions for that? No, not at all. What a prophet. Awesome. They might make a prophet doing that, but they're not a true prophet. Let me read you the next part. This is what the Lord says, when 70 years are complete for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you, and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. Okay, this is maybe the shockingest part about this scripture. Now that we're getting the context, we realize that the plans that he's talking about culmination will come 70 years into the future? How many of the people that he's speaking to will be alive when these plans come to be? Few. In fact, we get a snapshot of what it was like for those who did hear this prophecy and experience the fulfillment. Because there was a Solomon's temple, and then, of course, that was torn down, and then they went to captivity. 70 years later, they did come back into the land, and they built a new temple, and it wasn't nearly as impressive as the old one. And the old men, who would have been children or teenagers or maybe young men who saw it in the first place, wept. They wept. God's good plan was a good plan, but. Their sin had some serious consequences. and They remembered what it was like for a nation to serve God, and now they saw the results of when they turned their back on God, and they realized, oh my goodness, sin is a devastating thing. Even when God restores some things, it takes generations for him to fully restore what can be destri- destroyed. Let me say this, just because God's plan seems far off doesn't mean that it cannot empower you with hope in the presence. Here's the thing about God's plans. God builds things strategically over generations. And God calls you and I to play a role in that generational building of things in our own generation. So if I took my own family... Story. I'd look at uh, um, my dad, who came to faith in Christ in his twenties, and that was sort of God invading the Atkins family tree. At that, you know, in the twenties, well, he, it was 1960s, and he was 20 years old in, in Vancouver, and uh, um, God got a hold of his life. God, in very cool ways, brought him to faith in in Himself. So God invaded the family tree there. Well, it was God's plan. Just a plan for him. Did God only have in mind, did God sort of have this short-sighted plan that, yeah, I just really want to see Colin Atkins come to faith in Christ and it's really all I got. I, don't, I can't really see any further than that. I can't really envision that anything more could ever happen with this. Does God just think in those really tiny windows? No, I think God thinks in much greater windows than we can even imagine. I think, he f- I think God could see f- the potential for seven children. That's, I grew up in a big family. And I think that he could foresee that they would have children and that if he planted the seed of the gospel in my dad that it could flourish in some others and then maybe some others. And, and that it wasn't just even just a family thing that was happening but that other people would come into faith in Christ who were connected to this family and that there would be blessing that would spread all over the place But sometimes we don't see that, right? We just think, okay, God, you are doing this for me. We don't see the ripple effect. We don't see the generational effect. Or we don't think sometimes those ways. We just think, well, I'm in Babylon, and I'm not going to live long enough to get to go back to Israel and see the glory of the future and what's going to happen there. So what about those ones who were like middle-aged or older living in Babylon when Jeremiah gave his prophecy and said, God's got a great plan for you. In 70 years, you're going home. I'm 43. 70 years, I'm not going to make it. This still gave them hope. Why did it give them hope? Because they understood that what God is building is a long-term thing. God is built, and what we're called for, all we're called for is to play the role that God's called us to play in our own generation. We can pray into those future generations, pray for the future glory of what God might do if he establishes a strong foundation in our own lives that perhaps our children or other people who aren't biologically connected to us will be able to build upon that. God has a much bigger picture in mind. So even if, so I want you to think, yeah, God's plans for 10 years are significant. Heard that this morning from Garrett's, a 10-year plan from walking in these doors and you said God met you that first Sunday. So one thing you might not know about Brian and Crystal, I don't know if you still have this habit, but they would have a habit every Sunday of hugging each other after church. Do you guys still? I don't know if you still do that. They hug each other every time after church because God. I think I'm getting it right, because God did something for their marriage and for their lives right here in 2002. So we're seeing that work of 10 years, but God doesn't only think in 10-year increments. God thinks in lifetimes and generations and the lifespan of nations. But God calls us, because of that, to work in partnership with future believers. If you read Hebrews, I don't have time now, Hebrews chapter 11, you read that about all these people who had faith, and then it says at the very end, these incredible people all the way from Abel all the way up to all through the Old Testament, all these great characters had faith and trusted God. He said, they didn't get what they were longing for, what they were expecting, but they would get it in partnership with us. The stuff that God was doing in their lives hundreds and thousands of years ago was tied to the partnership that we would have today. So let me bring you back to our verse, Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. I'll read a little further. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. I will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I've banished you, declares the Lord. And I'll bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. Now here's the big question that always comes up with this verse. Can we claim this verse? This is written to Jews. I don't know how many of you are Jewish. I have some Jewish heritage somewhere back there, but it's so small, I don't even, I couldn't claim it, I don't think. Someone, a great-great-grandmother, I think, or something. Maybe there's a few more greats than I know. I haven't dug into it. But this is where Jewish people, the covenant people of God in the Old Testament, you say, well, but Christians quote this all the time, like it's hey, that's my verse, that's my life verse. Can we hang on to this verse? And I think there's a few different trains of thought. One train of thought is no, you can't. Look at the context. It's for Jews. Seventy years in the future, they'll come back from the exile. That's the plan God had. And you're not in Babylon living in exiles, and 70 years from now you go back to Israel. That's not your plan. That's not God. so some people just say a flat out no. Then I've heard some other people say, but we are connected to the Jewish people. Because we're grafted in, right? There's verses in, this, in the New Testament that talk about it's like the Jewish people like a plant and then we're like this branch that gets grafted. I don't know if you know much about grafting, but, you know, you sort of cut a wedgy shape in that branch and you can stick it to a different tree and it lives. It actually receives the sap from the tree. It's amazing. And so that, that's what happened to us spiritually is that here's this Jewish tree and they are the people of God and they're going to bless the nations and, hey, here we come along, non-Jewish people. We're a part of it. All that goodness that God had in store for the Jewish people, it's ours too. So some people have said that. But let me, I'll tell you, this is how I take it. I take it two ways. One, this gives us a window into how God deals with people. We see how he dealt with the Jewish people and we say, okay, God, we get a bit of an idea about his heart. A little bit about how he works with people. But here's the other thing, let me add to it, is that when we go into the New Testament, I think we find pretty strong evidence that God has a plan for us. For I know the plans I have for you. Is that, that, can we find that in the New Testament somewhere? Hang on. Plans to prosper you, not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. Let me introduce a different verse that's super popular too. Romans 8, 28. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. Okay, let's stop there. In all things, God works for the good of those who love him. Remember, plans to prosper you. That's in Jeremiah. And here we have God working for the good of all those who love him. in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. Does it sound similar? Sound like it's on the same page? I think God has a good plan for us. In all things, God is working for the good of who? Those who love him. Okay, so there is a prerequisite for how to be a part of this. It's those who love him who have been called according to his purpose, right? Not God coming into sort of sugarcoat or sprinkle fairy dust on my purpose, but me being called into his grand narrative for the whole of human history. And that grand narrative includes reconciling people to himself. So God calls me into that. He first reconciles me to him. And then he makes me a representative of that reconciliation process in the world. So God works for the good of those who love him. So yeah, that plans to prosper us, that sounds like, good plans. For, and then it says, for those God foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. So when we say that God's working for good for us, what does that mean? Or what's the primary good? Or, or what are some of the, the aspects of that good that we could say? Is it just that everything's going to be hunky-dory, we'll financially we'll succeed and, and uh, everyone will be healthy all the time and uh, we'll just always you know, get first place in the track and field meet or whatever? Well, we know part of that good is really spelled out well here. God destined us to be conformed to the image of his son. I love these words foreknew and predestined. They're theological words that cause fights. So let me give you the non-fighting version. For those God foreknew, you can take this to the bank. God knows you. You can split hairs over this verse and get into fights over it. But let's just stop there and say, it's really cool that God knows you. God knew you. He also predestined. Destined, it's the same as destiny. Destiny. So I think you can take this to the bank, too. God has a destiny for you. He knows you. He has a destiny for you. And that destiny is to be conformed to the image of his son, to become like Jesus. The God who knows you and has a destiny for your life, his design is for you to become like Jesus. The way you live, like Jesus. Your character changed to be like Jesus. The actions, Jesus said crazy cool things about, you know, uh, you know, you look at all the things Jesus did in his life, he says, you'll do even greater things, he said to his followers. Whoa. People are still unpacking that statement, how powerful it is. God knows you, and he's got a destiny for you to become like his Son that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. So God's got a family in store for you. He's got a spiritual family that you're meant to be a part of. It's a, it's a place, it's a relationship with others who are also in this relationship with God and you're meant to uh, be loved and to love in, those, in that family. You're meant to give and receive and reciprocate that in, in, in this family. Does it sound like God has a good plan for you? They sound like it's one that could give you a hope and a future. I believe that when uh, we look at these these scriptures, these scriptures of great promise, we need to understand them first, but then when we understand them, when we get the background, then I think it 's time to step back and worship. I think it's time to step back and say, "Wow, God, you." saw people who totally rejected you, who totally didn't even listen to prophets you sent to them, who totally uh, just lived for themselves in and, and sinful and selfish ways, and they did all sorts of terrible things, and, yet, and yes, they had to be disciplined, but then you, in your mercy, said, hey, I have a plan for you. If you think this morning that you've come to the point where you've just gone too far for God, Stuff you've done, the things you've been involved with, the things that sort of trap you or or ensnare you—it's just too. It's not for me anymore. God doesn't really have a good plan for me anymore. I just ruined all my chances, and now that's done. That's not true. That's not. That's not true. In the mind of God, He has good plans. He wants to change you to become like Jesus, and then he wants to uh, equip you to bring Jesus into relationships in the world. Into your family, into uh, your workplace, into whatever relationships that you have. That plan is still active for you, no matter what your history is. And it's a matter of saying yes to that good plan that God has and stepping into the hope and future that he desires for you. Will you stand with me and we'll pray together. Worship team, you can, you can come. Lord, we thank you that it's not too late. Anyone who can hear my voice right now, it's not too late to turn to you. It's not too late to say yes to you. It's not too late to uh, surrender all of our little, tiny, trifling plans for your greater plan. It's not too late. God, I thank you that uh, you showed your love and your mercy to Jewish people thousands ago who had lost all hope and even lost their own, their own land and their own nation and were exiles in a far-off place. You, you saw those... Um, conquered exiles and you said I've got a plan I've got a plan for you down the road and I've even got stuff for you to do right now God I thank you that you have a plan for us that you have a plan for us you have a plan for us down the road and you have stuff for us to do right now God there are things that you want us to walk in obedience in right now there's things that you've already told us to do some of us know that Maybe it's even coming back to our minds right now that there are things that you've called us to do in this season right now and uh, maybe we've balked at it a few times. We've come up to that, that uh, moment and we've said no a few times and it's not too late to say yes. But God, you're calling us right now to do that. So Lord, I pray that you'd uh, reveal the path you want us to take forward, the obedience that's next, the next right thing that you're calling us to do. And I pray also for the power to do it. Pray that our will would be changed on the inside. That we would will to do what is right and what you've called us to do. And also that our faith would grow to trust that you will give us the ability to do it. Thank you, Lord, for the good plans that you have for our lives. And now let us worship you with our mouths and with our lives in your name.